Our text this afternoon is going to be Titus chapter 1, and Lord willing, we will study verses 1 through 4. This is the word of Almighty God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Pray with me, friends. Lord, I pray that you will endue with power our study of your word, that we might be transformed into the people you want us to be. Be magnified, be glorified, I pray. Teach us, grow us, strengthen us, change us, save souls. But do all to your glory as you build your church and the gates of hell do not prevail. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Who are you? That's the question I've been challenging, challenging us with over the past few weeks. Remember who you are. And I've been reminding you that who you are is not determined by your feelings. Let me just ask for a second. How many of you are glad that who you are is not always determined by how you feel? Who you are is not determined by the society that's around us or what it says about us. Who you are is determined by what God says about you in his holy word. And over the past few weeks, we've looked at the opening words of Paul's letter to Titus. In the greeting, we let the words help us remember just who we are. And we've learned three very valuable things in two sermons. That's right, three points in two sermons. We are slaves of God. We are under the authority of God's word. We are the elect saved through faith. As slaves of God, we are fully under the authority of God. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who bought us out of the slave market of destruction. And as slaves of God, do loss, do loy, I guess, if it's plural, we are under God's authoritative word. Paul's writing it as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we're reading it today. But let's not think of ourselves in a negative light with that word slaves, because slaves are not like the kidnapped and abused folks of the American slave trade. We are welcomed and loved by a gentle, gracious, heavenly master. And this master says to us that he elected us, he chose us before the foundation of the world to be his, to be forgiven, and to be perfected in his presence. We, by the grace of God and the grace of God alone, are the elect saved through faith. All those truths came in the first three clauses of verse 1. Today, I do want to pick up the pace a little bit and work our way through the remainder of the greeting of this letter. We're going to find four more items to help us remember who we are if we know Jesus. How many of you believe I'll make all four? 
No faith. No faith from you people. We are picking up, because this is one long sermon, point number four. We have been given truth that leads to godliness. We've been given truth that leads to godliness. Again, Titus 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Because Paul, as an apostle, was writing for us the authoritative word of God, we already know, we know we've got our master's commands. Here, we get another truth about the word of God. Scripture teaches us truth which accords with godliness. God's holy word, the Bible, gives us the truth that helps us to grow and to live godly lives. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Say to us, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How familiar are those words? I mean, as Christians who study, preach the word of God, we have those verses before our eyes and in our ears on a regular basis. But don't let your familiarity with those verses prevent you from seeing the glorious truth that they proclaim. Christian, the Bible that you hold in your hand, perhaps the one you read from your phone these days, is the Scripture. It's the Holy Word of God. It is perfectly inspired. It is written down. It is preserved perfectly by God. It is breathed out by God. It is the very Word, the very breath of God. You know that in the beginning, God created the universe with a Word. God sustains the universe, keeping us in existence by the Word of His power. In the end, Jesus will return and he will defeat every enemy by striking them down with his holy command and infinite power. Because the Bible is God-breathed, it's perfect. God cannot speak lies. God cannot inspire mistakes. The Bible's true and trustworthy in every way. But the Bible is not only the true, trustworthy Word of God, it is also profitable. We're benefited by the Word. We're taught by God's Word, right? Profitable for teaching. You learn things in the Bible you didn't know before. We're reproved by the Scripture. We feel the conviction of sin when we see our thoughts and behaviors in the light of the Word of God. We're corrected by the Word of God. We're helped to turn away from sin by what God says to us. We're trained in righteousness by the Bible, taught to live in a way that pleases the Lord. And what do we gain from the Word of God? God uses the Word to help those who follow Him to be adequate, to be complete, I think you know what it feels like not to know enough, don't you? 
Do you ever feel that way? I don't know enough. I think you know what it feels like to feel like you couldn't do enough to please God. Don't you know that feeling? I think you know what it feels like to know that you are inadequate on your own. Don't you? But God says to you in his word, he has given you what you need to be ready to serve him fully. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us... Please see the phrase here. What has God's divine power granted to us? All things that pertain to life and godliness. I'm going to pause in the reading of that verse. Do you see those words? God has given you, Christian... All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter, under the inspiration of God, says to you, Christian, here today, that God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. How? Of course, it includes salvation. It includes the gift of God's Holy Spirit. But in the context of this chapter, he's telling you that it is the Word of God. It is the Scripture that gives you everything you need to live a godly life. Paul told Titus in verse 1, Paul said, I'm an apostle. Paul said, I'm writing to help Titus. I'm writing to help you, Providence Reformed Church. I'm writing to help you have the knowledge of God's truth that will lead you to godliness. The Word of God, the Bible, is God's truth that if you will be committed to it, will help you live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Now, you might say to me, that's obvious, Pastor. We all know that. I mean, here we are gathered together in worship as the church, so obviously we know everything you just said. Obviously. We know the Bible is God's word. Obviously, we know that it's a good thing to read it and understand it and apply it and live it out. So let me just ask you, how are you doing with the word of God? Is a genuine commitment to God's word a deep and soul-encouraging, life-changing part of your day-to-day? -day? Put some verses up fairly quickly. Psalm 63, verse 1. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Does your flesh faint in longing to hear from God in God's holy word? Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Do you memorize the word of God so that you will be protected from sin? Psalm 119.62 At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. <laughs> Would you get up in the middle of the night just to thank God for his holy word? Psalm 119.71 It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Would you say to God that it's good that you've gone through hard times because the hard times helped you learn God's word more? Psalm 119.72 The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Would you value the word of God above millions of dollars? Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Is God's word what guides your every step, step by step? Christian, if we've been given truth that leads to godliness in the scriptures, let's become a people who treasure the scriptures. How? Okay, I want to give you a profound Profound point. Be ready for this one, okay? Get your brains engaged because this, this may be deeper than most of you. Read the Bible. Heavy? Study it. Okay, maybe it wasn't so profound. Apply it. Surrender to it. Let me make some recommendations to you here. This is just me talking to you as your pastor. This is not divine command as much as it is God using shepherds to shepherd. I want to recommend to you that you develop the habit of reading the Bible every day. You might believe you're too busy. But the truth is you make time for the things you need to do, don't you? How many of you were too busy to eat yesterday? <laughs> Didn't hear any uh, takers on that. Make the study of the Word of God a must in your life. Get out of bed a little bit earlier. Set aside a little time during your lunch break. Take an extra 15 minutes in the car before you walk into your house at night. Find time to pause somewhere and get yourself into God's word. Now stop here and don't just hear this. I want you to let this sink in. Are you, really think with me here, Christians, instead of just being the, the sermon listeners here, are you committed to a time every day that you open God's word? Because if you're not, right now, ask God to convict you and move you toward it. You need this. Here's another piece of advice I'll give you. Pick a plan for reading. How many of you in this church in the last year have benefited from a Bible reading plan? Yeah, you have. Don't just randomly jump from verse to verse every day. Decide what you're going to do and do it. Maybe you pick one book of the Bible and you read it through several times, month after month. Maybe you take a month and you say, I'm going to read the book of Colossians or I'm going to read the book of Titus every day for the next month. That's awesome. Titus is only three chapters. It's 46 verses. I think you can do it. 
Maybe that's a plan. That's fine. Pick a book and decide you're going to read it through and through and through. Or pick one of those Bible in a year plans and start working through it. If you need help to find a reading plan, send me a note, give me a call, come talk to me. I will ask what you're looking for and I'll help you find something, okay? You need to be reading with a plan. Now again, I don't want you to hear this. I want you alone. I want you to apply it. Do you have a reading plan or do you just make it up as you go along? You will do better with a plan than without. You'll do better with something to guide what you do so that you don't just wonder every day, I wonder what I ought to try to go to today, and you miss all the context and all the structure. Don't do that. Let me recommend a couple other things really quickly here. Be involved in a Bible study with other growing believers. I got men working through the book of Isaiah every Thursday night at my house. And guys, we have a good time, don't we? We do. We really do. We're, we've made it all the way to Isaiah 33, I think we just finished, right? Or we're going into 33 this week. We're having a great time. Jump in. You're welcome. Come on. There is more than one set of women in this church reading through a Bible reading plan together. I know of a few, and I know of some that I keep finding out about later. Oh, yeah, we've got a group that meets, and we read the Bible together, and we talk about it. I'm like, that's awesome. Sunday mornings. We're working through a growth class to help you learn how to better study and interpret the Bible. It's on Zoom. Jump in. Come to my house and hang out as we study it. Whatever you want to do. Don't keep this all to yourself. Get connected with at least one other person who will read the Bible and study the Bible with you. And don't let yourself neglect sitting under the preaching of the Word. Make a commitment to being here, or wherever we are, on Sundays. Even when it's inconvenient for you, for the good of your soul, for the sake of getting deeper into the Word of God, be here under the preached Word of God. I could talk about a lot of the excuses I hear for why people don't come to gathered worship. And I just want you to think about what your excuses testify about your priorities. Now again, I know if you're sick, don't come here and make us sick, please. I get it. I, things come up. Things happen. I get it. I'm not trying to be legalistic. But make it a priority to get yourself under the preached word of God. If you know Jesus, you want to be godly. If you know Jesus, you want to please Jesus, and the way that you will live a life to please him is if you love the truth that leads to godliness, and it's found in the word of God. So love and learn God's word. All right. Still awake and with me? Point number five. We're getting so close, aren't we? We hope in eternal life. We hope in eternal life. We're going to make it into verse 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. There it is. Paul writes, and he serves the church in the hope of eternal life. 
And if you know Jesus, you have the hope of eternal life too. Now, when you hear that phrase, the hope of eternal life, you could be confused if you don't think in a biblical way. Hope here is not a wish. I might get eternal life. Boy, I really hope so. <laughs> Maybe I will. No. In Scripture, when hope is used like this, hope is a sure thing, a certainty that you are looking forward to experiencing. So if you know Jesus, you have a certain promise, an absolute guaranteed prospect of eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Don't let your familiarity with that verse or how some people misuse that verse keep you from loving that verse. As a result of God's enormous love for a sinner like you, God sent his only son, Jesus, God in the flesh. And Jesus gave his life and Jesus rose from the grave to save the elect of God. And whoever, or you King Jamesers out there, whosoever believes in Jesus does not perish. Instead, whoever believes in Jesus so as to turn from sin and trust in him has eternal life. Romans 6, 23 for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Colossians 1, 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you have trusted in Jesus... You have been transferred from being a citizen of the kingdom of darkness to being a citizen of the kingdom of God. You've been given life instead of death. You've been given hope instead of a promise of eternal destruction. That should lead you to gratitude. But it should lead you to something else. It leads to living in the hope of eternal life. You know what that means? That means you live with a heavenly focus. And that focus on eternity, that focus on heaven, gives you the courage and the strength to live for Jesus and the hope of his return in the here and now. Listen, just talking for myself here. If I hope in Jesus and I hope in eternity... I'm willing to die now for the glory of God if my hope is in forever. Let me show you a little longer passage with Paul talking about our hope. Look at Romans 8, 18 through 30. Just listen to these paragraphs, okay? Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, do you hear the hope in those paragraphs? Do you hear the focus in those paragraphs? This life is hard, but what we go through in this life is nothing in comparison to the hope in front of us in eternity. God will set right the things that have gone wrong because of sin. God will turn everything to ultimate good. And God will keep all believers. He will never lose us from the moment of predestination to calling, to justification, to glorification. And if this is true, our hearts, our minds, our allegiance needs to be well beyond this life. Our hope is in eternal life. Our hope is heaven. Do you, have, do you think about heaven much? You need to do it more. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is that Jesus is going to return and rule forever. Our hope is not in having things our way in the here and now. Our hope is not in modern politics. Our hope is not in fixing a broken nation. Our hope is not in staying safe or being healthy. Our hope is not in avoiding hardship or persecution. Our hope is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is that your hope? Sixth point, point number six. We've been entrusted with the eternal gospel. All the way through verse 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. How's that for a sentence? Paul said that he serves for the sake of the hope of eternal life, 
We know that all who know Jesus have the hope of eternal life. And now we're going to unpack a few points and facts around that hope. That, that's good news. That gospel that Paul's talking about here. First, notice that eternal life was promised beforehand by God who never lies. Last week we talked about election. We understood that those who are the elect of God have their names written in the book of life the book of those who will be saved. God wrote them down before he ever created the universe. And then among the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, among the persons of the Trinity, God promised eternal life for those he said he would save. And take this truth to heart. God never lies. Never. No, not ever. God never lies. God is true. Jesus is all about the truth. How do we know? Well, John 1, 14, talking about Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the what? Truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Now, you want to contrast that to God. The devil's a liar. How do we know? John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That's Jesus talking to some religious people that were obnoxious. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. God never lies. God is always faithful. God is always true. When God promises salvation to those who repent and believe, the promise is solid. When God promises judgment for those who reject his grace, that promise is true. When God promises that Christ will return and judge the wicked and renew creation as he reigns as king forever, that promise is rock solid. God never lies. God promised saving grace from the very beginning of the Bible. In the garden, God promised that one would come to crush the devil. Remember that? To Abram, God promised a descendant who would bless all the nations of the world. To David, God promised one to come who would be king forever. Through Isaiah, God promised one to come who would die and rise from the grave so that God's people might be forgiven. And all of the Old Testament is a God repeating a promise that a rescuer would come. And all of the Old Testament is God shaping the events of human history to make that promise come to pass. And now, today, that promise has come to fruition. Paul says of it, at the proper time, at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. At the proper time, the promise of a rescuer came to pass. Now that Jesus has come at just the right time, now that that happened, Paul says, I've been given the word of God to proclaim and God has commanded Paul, preach the word of God. He's commanded Paul, proclaim the saving grace of Jesus to the world. Now let me let you in on a little secret, okay? God has done the very same thing with you and me that he did with Paul there. The word of God that Paul proclaimed, the word of God, well, that's the word of God we have in the Bible. 
And the call of God on Paul's life to tell others how they can be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, that is God's call on you and me too. We, you and me, have been entrusted by God with the eternal gospel. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Do you hear the call in that glorious commission? Jesus Christ has all authority. The very authority of God. And Jesus, who has that authority, has commanded you and me to make disciples. Well, how do you go about making disciples? As you go through this world, as you travel the roads of life, you speak to people from all nations, of all people groups on earth, and you seek to accomplish two things. Jesus says you baptize them. Go into all the world, baptizing them, right? What is baptism? Baptism in Scripture is an act performed after a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is the way a person is united to a local church as they declare before the church, I have put my trust in Jesus and am now saved. So the call to baptize people in the Great Commission is the call that you would share the gospel, the good news with the lost, and you would invite them to find salvation in Jesus Christ and invite them to connect to the church because they've been saved by Jesus. But if you're going to make disciples, you're also to make disciples by teaching people to obey the commands of Christ. While salvation has nothing to do with you doing good works... Once you are saved, God commands you to obey him. So if we are to fulfill the Great Commission, we preach the gospel and we communicate with the saved the words and the commands of Christ. The task of taking the gospel to all the world, though, I mean, be honest. How many of you feel like you're big enough to do that? No takers? You're even quieter than when I asked about the food thing earlier. That task is too big for you and it's too big for me, isn't it? It's too hard to preach to my family, my friends, your co-workers, the rest of the world. But Jesus said to you and to me that he will be with us to help us carry out this mission. He will be with us until the very end of the age. So Christians, you should rejoice in this calling. We have been entrusted with the eternal gospel. We know what it means to be saved by Jesus. We know what God's word says about following Jesus. So let's obey the word and let's be committed to sharing the gospel. Now, just like before, stop. Ask yourself this question. Do I know the gospel? Don't, don't give me an in general, I think I might. But if someone looked you in the eye and said, I don't know how to be saved, tell me what to do. Could you answer that question? Could you share the gospel with somebody? If you couldn't, come talk to me and let me point you to some resources that will help you. Also, pray. Pray that God will give you the boldness to share the gospel with somebody in your life. It might be something just as small as inviting a lost friend to come here and hear the gospel. That's fine. 
but it might be braver. And you say to somebody, can I tell you how you can know God? But Christian, be committed to knowing and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's always possible, by the way, that as I preach this in this room or somebody watches it on YouTube, maybe someone's going to hear this and they've never, ever found salvation in Jesus. The good news is for you, too. All of us have sinned before God. And God offers forgiveness to everyone who will turn from his or her sin and trust in Jesus to find salvation. You can be forgiven. You can have life and joy in the God who made you. And I invite you, come to Jesus. Surrender yourself to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Ask him to save you. He, you will find life today. If you're not sure how to do all that, come talk to me. Give me an email or a call. I will help you understand. Point number seven. We are united to God and each other. Verse four. To Titus, my true son, child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Savior. We're reading a letter. Paul, he's the apostle whose life we read so much about in the book of Acts. Paul's writing to Titus. Titus is a Gentile believer. He, Titus was probably with Paul at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. By the way, how gutsy would Titus have to be to be willing to be a Gentile at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15? where they're discussing whether Gentiles can be saved. I'd be uncomfortable. Later in his life, Titus is the man Paul sent to Corinth to preach to the Corinthians and deal with the disaster that was that church. Titus was bold. Titus was faithful. And here... Paul calls Titus his true child, his true son of the common faith. This likely means that Titus came to Christ under Paul's ministry. And Paul greets Titus in his letter, the blessings of grace and peace. We see that all the time. You need the, the grace of God to have peace with God. And in that blessing, Paul puts God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior, on equal footing there in verse 4. That's very appropriate. Jesus is just as much God as the Father is God. And while this all is pretty standard, I just want to point out one last truth about who we are in Christ from this. Paul sees Titus as family. Paul knows that they're working together as men who share a common faith. Paul blesses Titus in the name of God. And from all this, we should see the truth that we are united both to God and to each other. If you're saved by Jesus, you're united to God. You're adopted into his family. You're a citizen of his kingdom. You're a joyful slave of God. And if you're saved, your family with every other believer who has ever been saved. So if you already think your family's got some nuts in it, it's really getting bigger if you're a Christian. 
That's why the Bible so often talks about Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of the family of God. Now, the lesson to learn from this is the reminder that we're in this life together. If you wish to live as a faithful Christian, you must be committed to build and strengthen your relationship with other believers in the local church. You can't hide and you can't stick to yourself and be faithful to the Lord. We're supposed to love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, comfort one another in times of sorrow, pray with and for each other, teach one another, and so much more. Simply put, if you want to live as a Christian, you've got to make it a point to make your life be connected to the lives of other believers in the local church. So let me challenge you one last time. How are you doing here? Are you living as somebody connected to the church? Do you reach out to others in the church? Do you participate in gatherings in other believers' homes? Do you encourage other people in the faith? Are you accountable to anybody at all? Does anybody know your life and know your needs? Are you honest about your struggles with anybody but yourself? Have you formally joined the church? Joining the church is a way that you become a part of this body of believers and let us know, I'm here to serve and I want you to be in my life. To live out your identity as a believer, you must see that you're connected to God and to the other believers that are all around you. All right. Remember who you are. Remember what God says about you. We've seen seven things in our study of these four verses over three weeks. And all of these things, I think, help us to know who we are if we have Jesus. Who are we? We're slaves of God. We're under the authority of God's word. We're the elect saved through faith. We've been given truth that leads to godliness. We hope in eternal life. We've been entrusted with the eternal gospel. We are united to God and to each other. May we live these truths. Let's pray together. Lord God, I am grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the family of God. I'm grateful for the call of God on our lives to be who you say we are. And I would pray, Lord, that even now, even now as we are here, as we are thinking about who you've said we are, I pray that you will prevent us from letting this be another sermon with just another set of points that we wrote down, but instead make it be a sermon in which we genuinely honestly stop and look and say is this who I am and if so what does that mean I pray that you have convicted us of sin I pray that you've encouraged us in hope 
And I pray, Lord, that we will be faithful. Help us now, God. Help us now that we would be appropriately submitted to you. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.